Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of Thoughts on Foreign Policy, a podcast I'm starting that, as the name would suggest, offers commentary on foreign affairs. My name is Derek Basakio, and I will be your host. Today's program will cover some major events over the last few weeks, namely the prisoner swap for the only American POW in Afghanistan and the takeover of half of Iraq by Sunni extremists. Before we get into those subjects, however, I would like to begin this program with a quote. Earlier in the week, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad was quoted by a Lebanese newspaper as saying the following, The United States and the West have started to send signs of change. Terrorism is now on their soil. Mr. Assad is referring, no doubt, to Western fears of the growing power of terrorist groups fighting his government. Many of these terrorist groups are augmented by foreign fighters, including some from Europe and the United States, who become radicalized in Syria. This is a major problem, for those same fighters may return home someday to commit terrorist attacks in their home countries. Recently, in Brussels, a man connected to one such group went on a shooting spree at a Jewish museum, killing four. As the Syrian civil war moves into its fourth year, Western policy towards the rebels will be highly scrutinized in light of the Brussels attack. Future episodes will touch on the subject further. Now let's talk about Afghanistan. On May 31st of this year, the story broke that the United States and the Taliban had reached an agreement to trade five Guantanamo Bay prisoners for Army Sergeant Bo Bergdahl, the only American prisoner of war in Afghanistan. This deal has drawn United States President Barack Obama both praise and criticism. The controversy surrounding the deal centers on a few key questions. Was Bo Bergdahl a deserter? Did the Obama administration negotiate with terrorists? Did the Obama administration break the law by not informing Congress of the swap prior to it? And will the five Taliban released pose a threat to the United States? As the United States seeks to draw down its forces in Afghanistan, these questions are incredibly important. Looking at them in order, let's address first the subject of the Army Sergeant deserting his unit. In 2010, the Pentagon concluded an investigation that found that the Army Sergeant had left his unit because he was disillusioned with the conflict that is currently America's longest war. Because of his alleged desertion, some argue that the Obama administration should not have worked so hard to obtain his release and that the terms of the agreement heavily favor the Taliban, whom the United States has been fighting since 2001. Particularly, there is skepticism of the fact that, in securing a supposed deserter, America compromised its long-standing policy of not negotiating with terrorists. The wisdom behind this policy is that if you negotiate with a terrorist once to, say, secure a prisoner's release, you'll embolden either him or other terrorists to take more prisoners in the future, expecting the same results. So, did the Obama administration compromise that policy by negotiating with the Taliban? Some would argue yes, some would argue no. It's all a matter of perspective, but the fact is, the deal gave the Taliban a measure of legitimacy that it did not have before. The Taliban used to govern Afghanistan prior to the U.S. invasion of 2001. That invasion saw the Taliban government toppled, and since then, the United States has chased the Taliban into the borderlands between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Despite the best efforts of the United States, the Taliban have proven that they are resilient. They have survived a large military campaign and drone strikes targeting their leadership. That resilience is best exemplified by the deal that was reached several weeks ago. Even almost 13 years on, the United States is negotiating with the Taliban, which gives them a form of recognition. Even if you do not see this as negotiating with terrorists, it is certainly a negotiation that has emboldened the organization at a time when the Obama administration would like to see it as weak as possible while the United States plans to withdraw its forces. Domestically, there is an uproar over the Obama administration breaking the law and not informing Congress of the deal prior to it. United States law stipulates that Congress is to be notified of any release of Guantanamo Bay prisoners at least 30 days before. Evidently, that didn't happen. 
According to the Obama administration, there were extenuating circumstances that led to its decision to not notify Congress, namely that they were concerned about the health and the well-being of the sergeant. The Obama administration believes that if word had gotten out about the deal prior to it happening, the Taliban would have killed Army Sergeant Bo Bergdahl rather than trade him for five of the prisoners in Guantanamo Bay. Regardless, the Obama administration did violate the law in this case. Perhaps, beyond its concern for the health of Bo Bergdahl, the Obama administration anticipated some of the controversy that would follow the deal and wanted to secure his release before any of it. There is no question that Bergdahl should be brought home. However, the Obama administration should have conducted the deal within the parameters of the law. Laws exist for a reason. The last issue with the prisoner swap is who the United States gave up. No doubt these five men are dangerous, and given that the Taliban specifically requested them, odds are they will resume operations with the Taliban after their one-year travel ban expires. Even President Obama himself hinted as much. It's hard to guess exactly what will happen, but odds are we may hear from these five again in the future. Beyond the release of the sergeant, it's hard to see any gains that the United States has made from this prisoner swap. Last week on my blog, I considered the possibility that the United States could restart peace talks with the Taliban and that this was a good first step to doing so. Unfortunately, after an attack by the Taliban on an airport in Pakistan and the resumption of U.S. drone strikes, it looks like any hopes along those lines have been dashed, at least for the time being. As those situations develop, I'll consider them in future episodes. Moving on, rotate your globe slightly to Iraq and reset your calendar to January of this year. It was at that time that the world was shocked to see that Anbar province in Iraq had fallen to the Islamic State of Iraq and al-Shem. The Islamic State, formerly known as al-Qaeda in Iraq, was beaten in Anbar province seven years ago, but very quickly overran the province at the start of this year. Fast forward to June, and the Islamic State has taken Mosul and pressed closer to Baghdad, threatening the government of Prime Minister Nuri al-Maliki. While this has happened, the rest of the world has looked at it and said, How? Iraq was supposed to be secure after the United States withdrew in 2011. Its forces were supposed to be able to maintain the security of the state. So how did this happen? The fast answer would be to blame the Obama administration for withdrawing American troops in 2011 because evidently the Iraqi army was not able to maintain the security of the country. While certainly that may be a factor, it's not the complete picture. Now a lot of people will look at Syria and they'll say, well the Islamic State was able to take a lot of territory in Syria and able to plan its invasion of Iraq. But that doesn't answer it either. How was the Islamic State able to take the territory that it did in Iraq? The answer is the sectarian policy of the Shia-dominated al-Maliki government. By alienating Sunnis through persecution, the government squandered any gains it had made with moderate Sunni leaders in 2007. Doing so has strengthened Sunni resentment of the government they feel they aren't included in, while sidelining those moderates who rose up to battle al-Qaeda in Iraq. There were plenty of warnings about this happening, and now al-Maliki is paying the price for it. Fed up with the government, Many turned to the Islamic State of Iraq and al-Shem as a way to exact revenge and end persecution. For the rest of the world, this is frightening. The Islamic State seeks to implement a hardline interpretation of religious law and stands accused of a vast number of atrocities inside Iraq and Syria. The Brussels attack I began with was perpetrated by a member of the extremist group. This issue is of much concern to the United States. Already, the Islamic State has created a country for itself out of parts of Iraq and Syria and could easily become a hotbed for terrorists plotting attacks regionally and globally. Dealing with this problem is daunting, but provides two opportunities for the United States. The first one is policy change in Iraq. 
If aid is tied to the inclusion of Sunnis in government, a significant source of tension could be eased. The second opportunity is in constructive engagement with Iran. Iran has an interest in defending the al-Maliki government and keeping Shia holy sites safe. While the United States and Iran have often been hostile to one another, the new president of Iran, Hassan Rouhani, has signaled he would like to change that. To this end, he has aggressively pursued talks on his country's nuclear program and cited areas where Iran and the United States could cooperate. This is one of those areas. The Iraqi army, with assistance, could yet turn the situation around and save Iraq from dissolution. The longer it takes, though, the worse the issue becomes. The Kurds in the north, who maintain semi-autonomy, have capitalized on the chaos and, given time, the Islamic State could become entrenched in its new territory. If the Iraqi government is not able to quickly reassert its control over Anbar province and Mosul, it may lose them forever. The argument can be made, of course, that Iraq's borders are an artificial construct anyway, but the last thing the region needs is for the Islamic State of Iraq and al-Shem to solidify its place. As steps are taken to combat the Islamic State, this podcast will be sure to comment on them. This brings us to the end of the first episode. I hope you've enjoyed the program, and I would love to hear back from listeners about the topics I've covered or on others. Thank you very much for listening. I'll be back next week.